Hi, this is Jack. A quick note before you listen to this episode of the podcast. As we release this episode in early April 2020, we are deep into the COVID-19 coronavirus crisis here in the United States and around the world. But we actually recorded this episode many weeks ago, in the very earliest days of the crisis here in the United States, before its seriousness had really sunk in. As a result, we make very little mention of the crisis, and we may seem a couple times to be a bit cavalier about it. But please know that we are now taking the situation very seriously. Dave, Jeb, and I are each doing well. We are hunkered down in our respective homes, minimizing our contact with others, and doing our parts to flatten the curve. So please, use caution, take care, and be well. And here's UCAP episode 496. Claire. But it's just airplanes, so it's not, it's it's not really no this is This is the best seat in the house. It's got a runway in the front yard. I think the theme for this episode, however, yeah. should be Don't Fear the Reaper by Blue Oyster Cult. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I like that. I like that. All right. All right. So I I okay. That's a great title. I though I maybe that's what we used. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Um, uh, um there's uh you know Is there a list? There is a list. <laughs> there is a list. Where'd it go? Here it is, right here. Uh so yeah okay speaking of the reaper all right hang on let me refresh here i think i changed it yeah speaking of the reaper uh did you see this video uh so this video of a zero zero landing uh-huh holy moly all right um so it's, it's a twitter uh, video on twitter uh out the front window of presumably an airliner or or some sort it says of says an a320 okay thank you um because i didn't read it i just looked at the pretty pictures um and I was actually somewhat riveted by these pictures because it's like a 55-second video, um, the first 45 seconds of which just shows you clouds, like zero visibility, out the front window of this airliner. Um, and then in like the last, I don't know, 10 or 15 seconds, you suddenly see the runway. Um, and I, I mean, they're, they're like... They're, they're basically on and off. Yeah, they're basically... They're in set, the flare. Yeah. They're t- in the flare when you can first see the runway out the out the front window. Um, and uh, I mean, and to their credit, they're totally on the center line. I mean, good job, I guess. But uh, uh, it, it's... Oh, that's that's all automation. I, I it's it's all something because they uh, you know I'm watching this thing thinking if I'm I'm the pilot in this airplane and I suppose if I was the pilot in this airplane I'd have a lot more experience than I do now. Um, but if I was in the pilot of this in, in this airplane with the experience I have now, I'd be staring out the window looking for trees. You know, it's like holy crap, this is what's going to appear. I don't know what's going to appear. I don't. Oh, it's a runway. Okay. Um, they really do this apparently, huh? Oh, you yeah. guys know more well, about the- I mean, I, I can't tell from here what kind of um, um, certification yeah. uh, that is. It, it could well be Cat 3. I don't know. Okay. Uh, I've heard that term before. I don't exactly know what Cat, Cat 3 is. Cat 3 is basically zero, zero. Cat Z- 2 is, uh, I think, 50 feet, 100 feet, something like that. Cat 3, Cat 3A or whatever it's called. Uh, is uh, zero zero mm-hmm. now? Um, as I understand it, um, all Airbuses and all Boeing's, I think, manufactured recently, and I'm putting recently in finger quotes, mm-hmm. um, have the capability to do that. Presuming everything is is uh, present and working, 
Uh, there's a, I'm sure there's a minimum equipment list for, for these, these operations. But you also have to be trained. The crew has to be trained and has to be current in the operation to mm-hmm. perform all this. I hope. Yeah. I hope. Uh, so, I mean, this there's, have, and, and there's probably some other restrictions about which I know nothing. But, yeah. Um, now, I mean, does this happen very often? I think I, it happens more often than you think. Well, okay. So let me let me be. I would notice this if I was on if one of the airliners that I was traveling on, and as people know, I fare more than average travel on a lot of airliners. Um, and uh, when we're uh, doing our our arrival through the clouds. I'm looking out the window, looking for the ground, all right? I mean, if forget straight ahead, I'm just looking straight down, which is a different kind of visibility, I admit. But I'm looking to when we break out of the clouds. And I'm not a real comfortable camper, so to speak, comfortable airline passenger, um, until I can see the ground out my, out my window. Um, and I would, so the point of this story being, I would have noticed if we landed on that kind of a circumstance, because it would have freaked me out. Yeah. I, I, I'm trying to think, and I, you know, not as many as you, Jack, but I, you know, I've been on a few airliners in the last couple of years, mm-hmm. and I don't recall, or certainly recall some some approaches in in IMC and some ILSs, but I don't recall anything like this. Yeah. That's, I mean, just to give give listeners a context here, when they can actually see the runway surface, um, even after even after they've touched down, and you can kind of sense from the from the video. I don't know. I actually didn't listen to the audio very carefully, if the, if there even is audio, but you can kind of sense from the motion of the video when the gear touches down. You can kind of yeah. you, you say, okay, they touched down. Yeah. So they're rolling out. They're rolling out, and they still can only see like. A, a stripe and a half ahead on the runway, and those stripes are standardized distances, right? They Aren't are. they like they're two hundred like, feet? Yeah. Okay. So I, you can see a stripe and then half the gap between a stripe. Um, and, but even if you can see to neck to head to the next stripe, so that's four hundred feet visibility. I mean, it's like, yeah. I mean, holy moly! That's yeah. Just... The, the other thing too is um, you're look only looking out the windshield, uh, mm-hmm. and a very very narrow view. Um, we don't know what they could see by looking out to the side. Okay, or, or true. Down. It's possible not they're down. That, not that that matters, because um, you know, in my airplane, for example, I'm it's Cat One, um, and I have to see something of the runway environment before I can land out of that approach. Um, with these kinds of of approaches, the three A's, whatever. Um, you don't need to see that. You only need um, the working equipment and the certifications. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cat Cat Two is again either fifty or a hundred feet, and uh, you still need, I think, to see something of the runway environment before you can land. Mm-hmm. Yeah, David, what's your take on this whole thing? Well, I've been in. A jump seat when we did a Cat 2 level landing uh, years ago. I think it was 100 feet was what we had. Uh-huh. And uh, it's, uh, for me, it was, it was a new thing, and it made me tense. Uh, the flight crew, they were everyday business with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just another ILS, uh, except they could go down to 100 feet instead of 200 feet, uh, at which point they had to see the runway environment or go around. Uh, 
And I've heard stories of people in light GA aircraft, the, the Part 23 stuff that we fly. Uh, mm-hmm. And they're out on a Part 91 flight. That is, it's not for hire. Mm-hmm. Uh, who have uh, landed in... Well, whether it was zero zero or fifty and an eighth of a mile was the subject of a very boisterous argument with the people on the ground. But I watched this guy come in when everybody else had gone missed and gone to a different airport. Um, I, I'm not sure that uh, I'm not sure that you're going to get uh, my cojones down that level. <laughs> Uh, may maybe with a little more experience with the uh, uh, LPV approaches, because I've noticed in having both an LPV and an ILS active at the same time that the LPV is far more stable uh, and easy to use than the ILS, which would have a little zig and zag and a little up and down depending on the terrain mm-hmm. as you were leading into the runway yeah uh, Ex- expand that acronym for me lpv l would you say lpv yeah uh that's uh sorry <laughs> trick question <laughs> yeah well let's see lateral oh. lateral precision with vertical guidance exactly. and that's lpvg a, got it okay yeah and just LPV, and that's the WASP GPS uh, equivalent to an ILS. And some LPV approaches, in fact, have uh, the same minimum as uh, ILS, uh, 200 and whatever the linear distance is for the for that particular runway, which varies a little bit according to the length of the runway and the lighting. Uh, and you got to have the right lighting to be able to use the LPV. But other than the right lighting, by lighting no you ground. mean by you mean like the runway lights and the rabbit chase lights and things yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah, because otherwise there's no ground infrastructure required for LPV. That's why we have significantly more LPV approaches today than we have ILS approaches. Yeah. Uh, the, the FAA has been busting its test airplanes, uh, writing and enacting these things, and the last I heard. I'll check this and get back to you, but it was over 5,000 LPV approaches, and I think there are only 3,000 ILSs. So yeah. it's, uh, it's, it's part of the FAA's effort to accommodate us with the new technologies available and to urge us to move over from ILS equipment to GPS equipment for precision approaches because, you know, they, they want to shut down some of these ILS systems. Uh, mm-hmm. they're, they're not cheap to put in. A million and a half is the going rate. Uh, about a million bucks for the installation. Uh, and... Uh, the LPV doesn't take any of that ground infrastructure except the, the lighting. So the FAA would like to shut down some of these ILSs so that they can get out from under the maintenance cost and having to send an airplane over to check its quality periodically by flying approaches using the ILS, and uh, which is going on pretty much every day. Mm-hmm. And hmm. So uh, just like they're going to shut down key VORs across the country as they get farther into next gen. Uh, They won't be VORs that service things like approaches, we're told. Uh, They're going to try to keep as many of those live as long as possible. Uh, 
but you'd be looking at a significant drop in uh, in uh, VOR stations at the end of this process because you, they're hoping you'll have a GPS that lets you go uh, direct approved on an instrument flight plan mm-hmm. like Jeb's got. Yeah. Okay. The well, uh, FAA maintains a, a page um, where they kind of count some of this stuff up. Uh, and it's a little, I mean, they, there's a lot of different ways to count it, and they they use each and every one of them to do so. <laughs> um, but, uh, and they do this, of course, by, by lines of minima, um, so that, you know, just because you've got a, a, a single approach plate, I think they, they would count each line in the minimum ta- minimum, minimums table. So you'd have LPV, LNAV, uh, VNAV, uh, all of these would be counted as a separate uh, approach. Oh, okay. Um, so that we now have, let me, this is as of... December 5, 2019. Uh, again, okay, three-ish uh, months ago. Yeah, yeah. Cat 1 ILSs, 1,550. This is U.S., obviously. Uh, Cat 2 ILSs, 39. Um, Cat 2 slash, or it says Cat 2 hyphen 3, 120. Cat 3 alone, apparently, is only 2. Uh, ILS uh, Precision Radar Monitoring, ILS PRM, 39. Uh, and then there's a handful of other ILSs. There's an ILS DME, one of them. Uh, uh, 1,496 localizer approaches, yada, yada, yada. Um, LPV, 4,503. And that's, again, in the U.S. There's a footnote uh, PBN, other uh, performance-based navigation. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, no, wait, that's not right. That's a, Those are WAS approaches. So uh, uh, the LPV-2, I'm sorry, the LPV approaches, 4,503, and those are all WAS-based approaches. Um, 600, I'm sorry, 6,826 LNAV, 4,336 VNAV. And these are all GPS standalone uh, uh, procedures. So there's a lot out there. Um, you're going to see in some areas, some airports, if the ILS breaks and there's already an LPV approach to that runway, um, they might not fix it, mm-hmm. especially yeah. if it's a 200-foot minimum uh, LPV yeah. approach, which okay. a many of them are. A lot of it, as Dave correctly points out, depends on the runway lighting equipment. Uh, I've seen, and I'm sure others have too, uh, LPVs uh, that only have a 300-foot decision altitude because the runway lighting is not up to speed. Okay. And or or there might be an obstacle or, you know, there might be any number of other uh, issues, reasons, whatever. Mm -hmm. But um, looking at... Let me see here. Um, looking at um, non-GPS or non-RNAV, shall we say, and and that's distinguished basically by being um, satellite-based navigation RNAV. There's seventeen thousand one hundred seventy-eight uh, approaches in the U.S. 
um, approaches wow. with. Um, I mean, let me see if I can uh, approaches using um, ground-based nav aids. David, uh, you um, like ILS or localizers or VORs or even NDBs, uh, as well as DME. They're in simplified directional facilities at F- SDFs. Um, I don't see any. Yeah, there are LDAs still out there, localizer directional aids, et cetera, looking at 17,700 and change. Mm-hmm. So roughly equal, roughly equivalent to uh, uh, ground-based approaches are roughly equivalent in number to uh, RNAV-based approaches. Okay. David, you said wow. Do you well, remember what prompted you to say wow? Oh, the total number of instrument approaches. Yeah, yeah. No and, one. No that's one. A big those number approach- small, you think that's a big number or a small number? Seventeen thousand. I think it's a huge number. Okay. Yeah. And keeping in mind also that that's not the number of approach plates out there. That's right. the number of minimums, the number of separate lines of minima right. that appear on all of these collective approach plates. Right. That's not necess- That's that's absolutely not the number of runways that have. That's correct. One of these. Yeah. That's correct. Okay. This has been another episode of aviation yeah, I know. data for. <laughs> I know. I know. This is a lot more. This is a lot more serious subject than we usually do in the opening here. Um, but uh, we haven't we we haven't done the welcome folks thing. Yet. No, we haven't done the well, but we will oh. right now. As a matter of fact. <laughs> Welcome, folks. You just landed out of an ILS. <laughs> I know. Welcome, folks. Uh, uh, yeah, I know. Speaking of flying blind, uh, welcome, folks. <laughs> this is the Zero Zero podcast. That's yes. right. Uncontrolled airspace, the general aviation podcast. I'm Jack Hodgson coming to you from uh, the, uh, the the banks of the Cochico River here in uh, Dover, New Hampshire, uh, world headquarters for, for uh, uncontrolled airspace. Talking with my two good friends here in our virtual hangar, uh, and uh, uh, in no particular order, let's see now. <laughs> Jeez, Deb, Jeb, you know, for, for for the better part of fourteen years, it never even bothered me. I just whichever name popped into my head, it was don't, the name I I did just, first. Just and, go with it. Yeah, I can't. I can't. You've now you've ruined it. You've ruined it. That right? was years ago. I ruined it, though. You're still laboring under that that. that. You have you have that sort of influence on me, Jeb. That's Jeb Burnside uh, coming to us from uh, somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. Hi, Jeb. How are you doing? Other than I'm, my giving you a hard time here. Other than you giving me a hard time, I am I am spiffy. Spiffy. I am, I am um, um, self-quarantining. I am self-distancing, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, which for me is not that hard. Yeah. Um, uh, well, yeah. <clears throat> I was going to uh, say it's not that big a change. It's not that big a change, no. It's, uh, now I just have a name to put with it. Yeah, no, right. Now you know what it's called. Oh, that's what I've been doing. Okay, well, now I understand. All right. I, not a, I have a different name to put with. I'm not antisocial. I'm, I'm, I'm pro-public health. That's right. And, exactly. Yeah, here exactly. we go. All right. Well, uh, and uh, I, I have no idea what the circumstances are going to be when people are actually listening to this, but uh, I, I take it you're otherwise doing well right now, right? And that's cough, cough, wheeze, wheeze. Yes. Yeah, no, yes. I know. No, I, I, I know. Should, Regular I, should, I shouldn't joke about this. But. No, no, no. We shouldn't joke about it. Um, and uh, uh, I, you know, and I, I've been think, I was thinking this morning about the fact that for the last three or four episodes, I've been calling attention to my cough. Um, and, but I have no reason to believe that that's anything other than a routine cough that, that I got from a everyday common cold about a month ago. Anyways, my other good friend here in the virtual hangar from uh, the air capital of the world, Wichita, Kansas, is Dave Higdon. Good morning, Dave. Good morning, guys. Well, how are you doing? 
I'm doing great. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, uh, got work out my ears that I'm trying to get uh, all squared away and behind me. Anyways, all right. Well, we're 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 all doing well. Uh, we're we're coughing for all the normal reasons, and uh, uh, and uh, well, we're, we're doing a podcast. We uh, we me. <laughs> I, 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 it's not unusual for me to get a cough and runny nose this time of year, and it's mm-hmm. strictly allergy. Yeah, uh, and we know it's strictly allergy because there's no fever involved. There's no body aches involved. Uh, sometimes the nose gets tender enough that it wants to glow in the dark, but that's that's fixable with a a, a nose mitten. A no, huh? What? A nose mitten? <laughs> yeah. A nose. Never seen a nose mitten? I'm not sure if I want to. What, what's mitten. what's a nose mitten? It's a, a, a little knitted sock that goes over your nose to keep your nose warm. Okay, see, I really now I really wish I had. How does nose. how does it how, does how, it how on? Yeah, okay, there we go. That was my question. How, how does it, it stay on? Yeah, well, you, you you get into the habit of only inhaling through your nose and exhaling through your mouth, or right. you use what my what my friends who wear toupees uh, use double back tape. Jeb, I think he's playing with us, Jeb. I I, think, I, I my leg is hurting. Yeah. Yeah, I know exactly. Um, exactly. Okay. Uh, it, would, it, it wouldn't be the first time he's been no, playing. No, 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 no. Nose uh, mitten, huh? Nose mitten. Um, That's another. Nose mitten. Okay, I, you know, I'm sitting here at the computer. I should Google this. You should. Uh, while you're doing that, I want to... Uh, so, um, this guy from... It's funny, every time I read this, this story, Elizabethan, I, say, I, I think it's a Shakespearean thing. Um, but it's not Elizabethan. It's Elizabethton pilot, all right? Which is Elizabethton, uh, North Carolina? Is that what it is? I was just I'm, not, I'm asking. Uh, and I'm looking here. Hang on. Where's the story here? Elizabeth Pilot. Yeah, that's that's Tennessee, apparently. Tennessee. Oh, Elizabeth. Yeah, okay. So Elizabeth Elizabethton Pilot um, and aircraft enthusiast. I'm not sure how that's significantly distinctive difference. Um, apparently, just earned himself the Guinness World Record for the most well, uh, most landings in a 24 hour period. That's the key here. All right, the most airplane stuff in a 24-hour period specifically this guy made 92 flight stops over a 20-hour period um one day back in the fall um in order to um capture this guinness book and and, uh i mean that's like that's some serious flying all right i you know i was looking at my logbook recently i think i've got a day where i landed at six different airports and that was my high all right um, this guy's got a, a day with 92 st- at 92 different airports. By the way, we're not talking like you know, um, you know, touch and goes here. We're not talking about pattern work. Um, and, he, and he published, he shot a video. So he might, as there's hardly an airplane flight in America now that isn't videoed. But uh, um, he, that's not true. But it's kind of true. Uh, so he posted a ca- camera in the airplane, and then uh, uh, has now posted a a, a time lapsed or. Yeah, time-lapsed uh, uh, video of him doing all these stops, and uh, it's kind of interesting. I don't know. What, um, what is a flight stop? I don't know. I, I, I um, is maybe what I we think, call a. Whole, I think whole that's stop. what you jam in the airplane door to keep it from clamming. Can't <laughs> <laughs> um, you just use your nose mitten? Yeah. Actually, it will work for that. Yeah, okay. Okay. Um, 
I should, as, I, as you can see from the link that I sent you guys. Uh oh, there's a link. There's there a is link. a link. And oh, it's a nose mitten Google search. I don't want to look at that. I really don't. <laughs> yeah, I, I really I, don't want to look at that. I did the same thing, and I got pretty much the same results. Uh, and, okay. Uh, uh, I am. Uh, I'm horrified. <laughs> I'm going to let you guys be the ones who know that. I, um, I, yeah. Yeah, okay. So, 92 stops. Um, I'm wondering if maybe this is what the mainstream media refers to, what we call a full-stop landing. I'm not I sure. I think that's probably uh, true. Yeah. Although, watching the videos, I'm trying to remember. Cause I, and you know what? Quite frankly, I couldn't bring myself to watch the entire video because he's got this video, this time-lapse video, speeded-up video of yeah. every single one of the landings. And uh, and it was just became too much of over and over and over and over again. So um, I stopped watching it. You know, but I, I seem to remember some of them looking like touch and goes. I don't know. I'm going to have to go back and look again. Well, a lot of you know, reading down the story, uh, he had witnesses at, well, apparently, uh, at, yeah. at all of these airports he went to. Which, I think that was which a Guinness Book of World Records thing. Yeah. yeah, which is part of the deal. And... Uh, um, I know, really. That's the that's the Guinness Book of World. That's the world really? record right there. Really? You know, man gets ninety two friends to go out to an airport at a particular time of day at, you know, at three a.m. or something. Yeah. yeah, and some of them were. He started. You know, yeah. yeah. Um, the first, I don't know, twenty landings are all in the dark um, in this video. So, uh, anyways, congratulations, this guy. Anyway, I yeah. want to say his name. What is his name here? You guys' name? I, Daniel I Moore. Daniel Moore of of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Uh, nice job. Good flying. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. He says he was going for 110. Later on, he's going to go back and try again for 110 um, landings in a day. Uh, okay. How many? Cool. Well, how many did he get? 92. 92. I it was. 92. I, I get closed it. the link, but 92, I think, yeah. was the number, yeah. which is still very good. Six. I'm six. six. Yeah, I, I, I'm thinking this must just be full stop. What their flight stop is? Yeah, I would imagine that. I don't know whether Guinness would accept a touch and go. As I don't know. You know, we talked about this last episode, whether touch and goes count for currency, but uh, I bet the Guinness, they don't cut count for Guinness World Records. Well, yeah. Touch and goes. Yeah. Show me in the FARS where it says. Yeah, because the FARS has a section on Guinness Book of World Record requirements. Um, Actually, there is one section of the FARS that says that. There is? What? uh, (laughs) What? Wait, what? There's, what was the, Dave, what was the girl who died when? Oh, yeah, right. Um. Oh, I, 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 right. We know who you're talking about. I can't yeah. remember her Jess, name. Jessica, Jessica Dubroff. Yeah. It. That's yeah. it. That's it. Yeah. And it was a... And you're right. Cessna, there's something... Cessna in the, Cardinal. Right. And there's something in the FARs now about not being not being allowed to pursue those kinds of things or something like that, right? Yeah. It, yeah. It's it's worded strangely, and it was, a, it was a statute passed by Congress that put it into place. Yeah. yeah I was going to say, if memory serves... Yeah. The FAA didn't make that rule through the normal Administrative Procedures Act. It was thrust on them by Congress. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, okay. All right. Moving on here. Um, interesting news from the EAA. Um, and I, as a rule, I don't talk about I don't know if listeners realize this or not, but this is a time of year when I usually black out stories on EAA because we don't want to shortchange our friends at Sun and Fun. Um, but I'm going to make an exception here um, because EAA is doing something that's kind of interesting, and I wanted to talk about it a bit here. Um, EAA recently announced a program um, through their Sport Pilot Academy, or, or maybe it's called the Sport Pilot Academy. Let me open up the link here, um, where they are selling um, a, a, a training program, a training package, where over the period period, I believe it's three weeks, you can go to Oshkosh 
And in an intensive three-week training program, um, you can get a sport pilot license for a flat fixed fee. Um, yeah, looks like someone was about to say something. No, no, just breathing heavy. Okay, um, and uh, um, and their and their price for this is ten thousand dollars. So for ten thousand dollars, you go and spend three weeks at Oshkosh, specifically in their Academy um, Lodge building, um, and which is very nice. It is very nice, um, and uh, and do intense training over this three week period. And at the end of the three weeks, assume, and they do make you know like some people may just not be up to it, all right. But generally speaking, they believe that most everybody who does this thing will end up with a sport pilot license for ten thousand dollars very interesting um but my question immediately was because everyone always asks us how much does it cost to get a pilot's license and it's kind of hard to know because it varies all over the place and it's you know hard to figure out what the kind of the baseline cost is and so uh we had a conversation by email with our our pal in in uh, eaa media uh dick napinski about um we asked him to check on for us what portion of this ten thousand dollars was going towards things like the housing all right and because they get food and lodging as part of this ten thousand dollars and we wanted to know how much is actually the flight training give us a baseline here on what it might cost to get a sport pilot license and so dick dick was very generous and kind and 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 asked around and came up with some numbers for for us and basically it's and there'll be a link in our show notes to his response email to me um because he detailed it a little bit but the short answer is that of the ten thousand about seven thousand dollars uh is the cost of the training um, so there's a baseline for people. How much does it cost to learn how to fly? Sport pilot license, $7,000. Um, quite frankly, I think that's a little bit high even. I bet you could do it for less than that, but probably not a lot less. Um, and anyways, so I, I think, I you know, and kudos to EAA for simply putting this program together. Um, I, I think, I hope it's going to be successful um, and, and popular. And, you know, so anyways, what do you guys think about this? I think that's pretty nominal, actually. Um, a, a relatively low price, you think? I said nominal. I think it's it's ballpark. Uh, okay, normal. Okay, all right. Well, yep. I didn't say normal. I said nominal. Nominal. All right, because most because nominal is a good everyday word that people really understand what it means. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. All right. Exactly. All right. Yeah. It's it's within is it within the expected range? How's that? Yes. Okay. And I and and for what it's worth, I believe that's an accurate use of the word nominal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, I, I don't know. It's too bad that it costs that much, all right? I mean, it's like, you know, how many other pursuits in the world are there? I've said this for years now. I said, it, 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 you know, I call it the, and now we'll call it the $7,000 speed bump, all right? If it costs $7,000, if you had to spend $7,000 before you could go riding your Harley, all right, Harley sales would be way lower than they are now, you know, or to use your bass boat or to drive an RV. Yeah. Um, it's crazy that, but, but it's, you know, it's a safety thing. I just wish it weren't seven thousand dollars. I wish it were more like four. But well, in a lot of states, Kansas among them, uh, you must have a motorcycle endorsement on your driver's license. Well, to legally ride a bike over a certain displacement or horsepower. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of people, the only way to get that endorsement is to to take an organized class, like yes. a, a rider's edge class through one of the Harley dealerships. And from past experience, uh, 
you're looking at about 300 bucks there. Right. But you also have to, you don't have to have the bike. They provide that. But you yes. have to have the boots, the jacket, and the helmet. And if you buy what you're going to use when you're riding on your own, you're going to look at another 500 bucks worth of gear right there. Uh, but the difference being, there is no federal requirement on this motorcycle licensing. That's a state thing. And they have improved approved inst- instructors who teach this stuff. And uh, it uh, it just doesn't take as long if you've grown up riding a bicycle to pick up riding a motorcycle um, aviation it's it's a tad bit more complex uh, in terms of the demands and what you have to know the knowledge test the practical test uh, so it's, I think Jeb's right I, I think there is a cheaper way to do it but I would have to start with you owning the airplane yeah that's, yeah that's, for what yeah. it's yeah right yeah, for what it's worth. And, um, and I think also you need to have um, some spare time set aside. You couldn't string this out over a year, for example. That's another factor. Doing it fast makes it cheaper. Um, yeah. Um, but it does require a cost not, in other not, ways. Which and means not everybody to, can take a month out of their life to go yeah. learn to fly. Yeah. So well, I, I did, did mine in... Four and a half weeks and 43 hours. Yeah. As in most things, David, you are a special case. Uh, well, I had a head start. <laughs> I, I, I'm definitely a head case. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, I had a head start. I didn't come into uh, flight instruction uh, with zero time. I'd been flying hang gliders and ultralights for quite a number of years and, and quite a few hours. And that was good preparation for going forward. But we owned the airplane, and right. owning the airplane did three things for us. One, it reduced costs because then I didn't have to rent from the flight school, and we worked out what the costs were, and it was cheaper for me even when you start talking about the uh, airplane payments. Uh, second, when you own the airplane, you pretty much eliminate any scheduling complex because mm-hmm. you the only one that is allowed to use the airplane unless you give up that privilege to loan it to somebody else to, to get their uh, license and and third you're going to be flying that airplane when you get the license there's no transition required mm-hmm. you already wired into that airplane because of the time you spent an instructional flight with a CFI. So uh, uh, I talked to a gentleman uh, just last week uh, who was going to look at a Cessna 150. Uh, wanted to get his license. And he talked to a friend of his, and he could get this 150, I think, and it was just out of annual. And I think he was looking at 16000 for it. And it was basic IFR. And sixteen thousand. He was uh, hoping that it checked out because he sounded like he really wanted the airplane. But his plan was to get his uh, private, get a couple of hundred hours, get his instrument, sell the airplane, and then buy something more practical for the tran- transportation flying that he wants to do. Mm-hmm. Sounded familiar. 
Yeah, exactly. 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 So, anyways, well, uh, thank you to uh, uh, Dick Nipinski of EAA for uh, helping us out with this information, and uh, good luck to EAA for this program. Sounds pretty cool. Um, I'm sure by the time summer comes, we'll have a better idea of how it's going, and we'll talk to them when we're out in Oshkosh. So, uh, anyways, what's next here? Um, uh, David, you put this on the list. I almost didn't move it up to talk about today, but um, AOPA asks Mexico to accept UAT as ADSB source. Uh, is this a significant story? Is this? A, I don't even know what this means, to be honest with you. And that's kind of on behalf of our listeners, I'm going to ask you, what does it mean, accepting UAT as an ADSB source? Well, unlike most of the uh, uh, civilized aviation using countries of the world uh, we have two options for satisfying the ADSB out mandate the international standard which is a, a mode s transponder transmitting on 1090 megahertz with extended squitter for the data that is transmitted every time that transponder squawks that's your airspeed your altitude uh, information on the direction you're going that stuff that informs the air traffic controllers the faa also gave us and it the mode s 1090 es is not exactly the cheapest way to go when you have a universal access transceiver option like we have in the states uh, that uses 978 megahertz. Uh, it can work with the most existing mode C and mode S transponders. Uh, if it's really old, it probably won't work. But it transponder that's been it marketed and put in the airplane in the last 20, 25 years should work with it. It's lower cost, and the UAT also has the pure UAT also has the uh, uh, benefit of having. ADSB in so that you can get the free traffic and weather services that the FAA provides. Okay. We're the only country in the world that's done this, but some of the Caribbean islands have been looking at it because of how many people could fly over from the states out of Florida. Uh, so we get a lot of cross border traffic. A lot of people here in the States uh, fly down to Mexico during the winter or for various events or just because, like we did one year, you want to take the long way to, to Cancun. Uh, right. So you're saying that Mexico requires Mode S? Mexico uses the international standard, the ICAO okay. standard, 1090 ES. And the United States has both, both. UAT okay. and. So the AOPA is saying, look, you could get a lot more traffic across your border from the United States if folks could use their UAT to satisfy your ADSB mandate. Okay. Is it the same with Canada? Uh, Canada is only using 1090, and they're not even using it yet. All right. They're, because they're, I, I, we've heard stories about people who are unable now to fly into Canada because they don't have the right ADSB, or is it they don't have any ADSB? Well, the, the right ADSB for Canada, uh, and I, if my memory serves, I think they postponed their. Uh, and change their uh, uh, mandate, active mandate date. But 1090 ES, the ICAO standard, is what Canada right. is using. And most of what they're using it for right now is polar traffic in the northern part of the country and helping track okay. mostly airline traffic yeah. going across from Europe to, to Asia. Uh, 
So we'll... Yeah, okay. And let me stand correct. Let me correct myself and and stand corrected. Uh, The stories I've been hearing aren't that... uh, They're the other way around. They're they're Canadian flights that couldn't come into the U.S. Um, And... and, Yeah, uh, now that's an issue, too. Okay. Uh, So, anyways. All right. Well, so so we're asking Mexico to ease up a little bit so that we can go to Cabo is is what we're doing here. Yes. Uh, And putting in... uh, Putting in uh, the uh, 978 hardware at the existing stations that they have apparently is not that complicated and relatively inexpensive. And AOPA thinks that they would gain enough cross-border traffic from the U.S. with that option available to make it economically viable. Okay. Jeb, anything to add to this? Not a thing. Okay. Um, uh, Only that... Um, even with uh, the availability and, and uh, approval of 978-based uh, ADSB out solutions in the U.S., there are still limitations, uh, like uh, over 18,000 feet. You can't use UAT. You can't use the 978. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I, I would be really – I won't be surprised if Mexico and eventually Canada allow it, um, Bahamas also, but I don't see any other countries adopting 978. <clears throat> okay. I think – I'm trying to remember. Way back when – I've been doing this podcast for so long, there are things that – Listeners remind me of things, and I go, we did that? Did Really? I kind of almost don't even remember that. Um, I seem to remember that there was a UCAP drinking game one time. I'm trying to remember what it was. Do either of you remember what the UCAP drinking game was? I can't. I don't remember. But here's a, here's a new UCAP. The, the latest, <laughs> my latest UCAP drinking game is uh, when I ask one of you guys, you know, like, do you have anything to add to that? Do you have any, what's your, your and, and, you, and you say, you say, no, I really don't have anything to say about that and then talk for five minutes about it, right? right. Um, and, and that's when I take a sip of coffee. All right, that's when I take my drink. Um, and you both do it, and maybe I do it too and don't even realize I'll, it. I'll say, if we did this after 5 o'clock, I could make it scotch. I know, and that, would, and that, uh, yeah, and that is a bad thing. Uh, well, no, scotch is good. Uh, never mind, you know what I mean. Uh, David, you alluded to something a minute ago that's been on the list for a little while, and we keep putting it off, and I really want to talk about it today, at least for a few minutes. And that's the whole subject of pre-purchase inspections, if you're thinking about buying an airplane. Um, and my question is, um, and and don't get excited, people. I'm asking for a friend. Question: You're making little finger quotes here. <laughs> asking for a friend, all right? But uh, if one were sort of fantasizing on the subject of buying an airplane, um, and they're trying to kind of figure out, is it even within the ballpark of affordability for me? One of the unknowns, it seems to me, is well, we always talk about pre-purchase inspection, and we I know it's important. I mean, I, I think we may know, know you know. Um, we're not reluctant to point that out, but what does a pre-purchase inspection cost? Are we talking about a thousand dollars, a ten thousand dollars, a five hundred dollars? There's no set, fee and of for course that. there's not. So let me just kind of give you a couple of parameters here. All right, let's say I'm considering buying a 172. All right, and that it's within an hour's drive of wherever my mechanic is located. All right. Um, so in other words, it's relatively little travel, um, and it's a your basic 172. And, and ballpark. I mean, we're talking like, is that going to cost, is a mechanic going to charge me $500 to do I, that? I think, I think you're asking the wrong question. Okay. Okay. You're asking how much a pre-purchase inspection costs. Okay. And the answer is uh, it costs whatever you negotiate with the person doing the inspection. Yeah. Yes. Uh, however, that may or may not be the best way to proceed when looking at a potential aircraft purchase. 
My view is that the best way to proceed is to take it to a third party who hasn't, who has never seen the airplane before, uh, and get an annual inspection performed. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. There's a number of reasons for that, um, not least of which is generally you'll get a set price for the annual inspection by the shop okay. uh, with the proviso that any remedial actions would be extra. Secondly, um, if you buy the airplane, bingo, you got a fresh annual. Right. And you know who did the annual as opposed to if you're buying an airplane with a quote-unquote fresh annual um, without any any uh, other history to it. You may not know how well the annual was done. Mm-hmm. Um, and then thirdly, um, you have the opportunity, if you do it right, and this is the way I did my airplane, I, I did a basically an owner-assisted uh, uh, annual inspection. Mm-hmm. It took a couple of days. As a pre-purchase inspection. Uh, as a pre-purchase inspection. Okay. It took a couple of days, and I was tired and sore and, and all the other stuff from crawling in and around and under and, and over airplane, an airplane. But I came away with a lot better knowledge of the airplane and its systems and mm-hmm. trouble spots on the airplane. Uh, I came away with uh, a, a uh, uh, confidence. In the mm-hmm. airplane, knowing uh, yeah. that these systems had been inspected in a such and in such and such a manner, um, and ultimately, I think it saved me money in the long run. Yeah, well, I mean that makes that makes a lot of sense. I I had always heard though, not to say that an annual isn't a good starting place, um, uh, but I had always heard that considering an annual as a pre-purchase inspection didn't work because annuals don't go far enough. Well, um, it. I don't now we're know. in. Now we're I, into that one word answer. Right. Depends. Yeah, depends yeah. on the airplane. Exactly. Okay. Uh, David, go one, ahead. One seventy-two uh, Piper Cherokee, uh, a tube and rag airplane like a, a, a Cub or an Aranka. Stone cold, simple machines. Uh, not difficult to inspect. Uh, yeah, you move up to a Bonanza B thirty three like Jeb Scott. Uh, there's considerably more complexity and more things that have to be checked, at both at annual and during a pre purchase. You got the retractable gear, you got electric flaps, uh, a trim system that's a, a, a little different than what uh, those simpler airplanes might have. Uh, it. Uh, and it gets more complicated there. Oh, it's a Baron. Now you got two motors, two props, uh, and it all adds up. the The important thing is that whoever you get to do your annual, you ask them how they're going to start the annual, or if they're going to do your pre purchase. How are you going to start the pre purchase? And if they say anything other than by going through the log books and the maintenance records, run to somebody else exactly because that's where you want to start that whole process is the records of how the airplane's been flown and maintained that all the airworthiness directives have been accomplished any service bulletins that you think would be smart to follow the factory advice that they've been accomplished then you start and 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 while the mechanic's doing that while your inspector's doing that you can be doing the owner assisted thing like taking off inspection covers taking the seats out uh all under that mechanic's quote unquote supervision 
mm-hmm. but it'll move the process along. Now, looking through the logbooks, uh, you know, that could be several hours if you've got an airplane that's 30, 40 years old because the the uh, really diligent uh, mechanic, uh, the inspector, he's going to go back to page one, logbook one, and follow it through and make sure that everything was done according to Hoyle from the beginning rather than saying, well, let's see, just in the last year or two years, that's insufficient and unacceptable. Yeah. Now, and okay, okay, I'm kind of becoming convinced. Um, l- let me, though, state maybe restate or whatever something you've just said here you're you're saying do an annual as the pre-purchase inspection i think though what you're uh, to me don't you're not saying take the seller's word that it just had an annual um Oh, I take the seller's word that it just had it but the blog books are what are going to want to see to prove it okay yeah, so you don't it's got to be written is... down in the logbooks, and, and yeah, okay. to, before you buy the airplane, definitely uh, inspect the logbooks yourself. Right. Better is to have a mechanic you trust inspect the logbooks. That's the part that I would that would give me a lot of comfort, right? Yeah, as opposed to, um, you know, because I'm I'm not suggesting that anyone has has uh, has falsified an annual here, but you might have <laughs> you might have done an annual that is kind of quick you know quick turner i don't know how, how to characterize it exactly but you know not very in not very deep it's look. a P- p51 annual what's that he, he uses a parker 51 pin <laughs> okay oh yeah right a p51 yeah okay yeah I, I, right i mean and i you know i mean i don't know anyways okay all right well so you, you've now successfully not answered my question but. no i have answered your question and i said the question is you're asking is is not the correct one yeah okay okay <laughs> and and what i said was uh you should really do the annual if you're serious about buying the airplane yep you should you should do the annual inspection uh because you know there, there may be um, let's back up. When you and when you do the annual inspection, you should use the manufacturer's checklist. There is generally one, unless it's a really old airplane. There generally is a a checklist or a a uh, an outline of of what uh, an annual inspection co- should consist of that that accompanies the airplane. It's in the maintenance manual or whatever, um, or the the type club. Um, um, supporting that particular aircraft model has a list of things to check. Um, I'm not sure I agree with David when he says um, uh, an annual inspection may not find certain things. Um, There may be um, additional equipment installed that a a, um, manufacturer's uh, annual inspection suggestion or or, or uh, checklist would not uncover, but that's certainly something that can be dealt with separately. Um, the one of the biggest parts, though, of as Dave correctly points out, one of the biggest parts of an annual inspection or in, or a pre-purchase inspection is the logbooks, and uh, part of that also is airworthiness directives that apply how they've been complied with whether they've been complied with um are there other components uh, um that have been installed in the air, on the airplane since it left the factory uh that perhaps um uh there may be an ad on that someone has missed okay. uh, and that's another another thing that you need to keep in mind um 
and then there's always you know hey let's let's this is a this is a big ad let's say it's a spar ad or let's say it's an engine ad or something mm-hmm. um that's a that could be a significant um uh, thing let's go in and make sure that that ad was accomplished and not pencil whipped right okay all right okay um I predict we're going to get mail, um, but okay. I, well, uh, no, you, that'll be interesting. You may I'll, get mail, but yeah, I won't. I well, but I'll forward it all to you guys. All right. uh, uh, no, actually, I think it'll be interesting to hear other people's experience and, and perception and, and whatnot on this and on anything we talk about for that matter. But okay, all right, all right, and, and, and keep in mind also, um, just like with buying a house or or a used car or, or something like that, if your your inspection, whether it's a pre-purchase or an annual or some other type of, of uh, inspection, which would yet to be described is yet to be described, if it uncovers a problem with the airplane, you have three options. You can walk away. Yeah. You can accept it as is. Or you could negotiate with the seller to either repair it or knock down the price. Right. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Thank you. I bet we come back to this. But, uh, okay. Great. Look um, forward to it. Yeah. Jeb, you put this on. The, so uh, uh, this is not an off-field landing of the week. We've had an off-field landing of the week in a while. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, And this is not one because these this guy landed on, an, on a paved runway. Um Talking about this uh, uh, Phoenix uh, gear up landing, Jeff. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, you liked this landing. You you thought this was cool. Why? Well, for one, uh, it was done smoothly. It was yeah. done. Can you describe the situation? For okay, people? this whoa, whoa, whoa. is. Um, I can't tell what kind of airplane this is, um, but uh, it's a. Ah, uh, here it is. A Grobe work. Uh, I can't pronounce that. G120A. It's it was operated registered to uh, Lufthansa Aviation Training here in the U.S. Okay, yeah. And this was at Phoenix's Goodyear Airport right. on uh, March twenty, uh, March two. Um, this is a uh, a training school, uh, and uh, they obviously because it's Lufthansa, they train um, pilots to fly for the carrier Lufthansa. Um. It's it's a good example of how to do uh, an intentional gear up landing mm-hmm. because they used up all the energy of the yeah. airplane in the air. They uh, touched down with, as, with the minimum airspeed that they could. Um, they didn't really try to to shut down the engine or futz around with stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, they flared it. Um, it came to a stop. They got out end of end of drama. Yeah, and I, we've seen recently. We've seen some other um, videos of similar instances where they weren't as well executed. Let's just put it. Yeah, that I way. know. I think I know the one you're talking about. There was one where he stalled it about. He stalled you know, it about ten feet above the runway. Yeah, and came down hard. In, yeah, and no telling what's wrong with that airplane. Or, you know, probably the airplane got totaled. But um, you know you can, you can hurt your back yeah. really substantially with something. Yeah, that, like that that was a bad thing. So, but this um, uh, this Grobe thing, this uh, Phoenix is Goodyear the name of the airport? Is Goodyear that why is it the says name Phoenix, of the airport? Phoenix Goodyear Airport. Um, yeah, it was pretty impressive to watch watch the the uh, him him him. I believe it was a him. Um, doing, looked like doing, two guys. It looked like they also were wearing uh, fatigues 
and uh, had pa- had parachutes on. So yeah, that's no, what I was no, going to ask no about. No telling what they were out doing. They could have yeah. been out doing uh, intentional aerobatics or or um, um, uh, upset recovery training, something yeah. like that. I was asking about that. It did look like at least one of them was wearing a parachute because um, they, you know, like you say, and and the post landing, post coming to a stop yeah. stuff was all textbook too. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like very quickly open the canopy, hop out of the airplane, get away from the airplane. Um, yeah, the only yeah. thing I might have, since it is a canopy equipped airplane, the only thing I might have done differently was crack the canopy a little bit. Yeah, so except, that, but wait so a minute, which way did it open? It I, opens I, yeah. aft, I believe. Let's. So it's hinged at the back or hinged at it the front? It slides forward. It slides. Okay. If it slides, I agree with or, you I'm completely. sorry. It slides rearward. It slides rearward. Okay. Slides yeah. aft. Uh, let, me, let me double check yeah. here. I guess it also depends on whether yeah, it's... Yeah, pro- slid aft. It, it, whether it's approved for being open in flight, which Well, might... you know, the airplane's not going to be used again in the near future. Yeah. So, I, you know, I'm of but the I, opinion that if even, even if there is a prohibition on not opening the canopy in flight this is an emergency i am able to deviate from those regulate that regulation to the Bing. extent required to meet the right. emergency i'm going to crack the canopy open so yeah. that it won't bi- be, get bound up Although, can we say for a certainty that they didn't do that? I mean, clearly it wasn't visually cracked. I mean, it but didn't, we were didn't appear to be. But no, we can't say for certain. You know, I mean, I would imagine that I would be. I would imagine that that it certainly was unlatched. Um, well, if I'm not, just you know, I'm I'm just your friendly neighborhood podcasting observer. Yeah, yeah. Well, they teach the uh, unlock the door for water ditching, unlatch the door, and stuff a. Uh, a flip-flop, a shoe, a sock, or something in nose the, the hinge, so that it can't <laughs> slam, so it can't slam shut. Because what could happen is you you hit the water, you all that inertia on the door it swings yeah. forward real fast and then bounces off the stop and comes back and closes. Yeah. And if it warps the cockpit for any reason, you may not get that door open again. Oh, no, exactly right. Exactly right. By the way, Jeb, I heard that, uh, and it's probably just as well that, Je- that David didn't because we don't want to encourage him. Um, but uh, 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 what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. The mnemonic that I seem to recall from my training days was uh, everything off and everything open. Um, yeah, that's a good one. That's a good way to do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so you know, like like turn off all the electrical stuff. Uh, I mean, it, and and as I recall, it was a little bit simplified, but basically it was a good rule. And 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 cracking the doors and you know and or windows um, and you know just basically, yeah. Good job to these guys in uh, in Phoenix. It yeah. was uh, it's a if it weren't gear up, it would have been a crazy pretty landing. It was a crazy pretty landing. It was I mean, a good landing. Watching these guys work it um, in the flare. I mean, yeah. it was really really graceful to see them. You, like you described it, Jeb. They were you know just just pulling back slowly, 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 just keeping it off the ground as long as possible. It was kind of pretty, yeah. except that they were about ready to kill. Except the, they didn't you know, have wheels down. You know, they didn't have any wheels, yeah. and uh, and Other they were that, about to. They were about to, you know, sudden stop the engine, which is always sad. Um, but, uh, yeah, nice job. Yeah. Nice job. David, anything you yeah. want to add to this? Well, it'll fly again. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Oh, yeah, probably. They touched the ground. So, I mean, yeah, the engine's going to require a good looking at. But, it's uh, going to need new Well, there's, there's a teardown required. You're going right. to re- repair or replace. My would be re- preference would be replace the prop. Uh, you got to have flap damage. Uh 
I don't know if this is a composite like most Grob uh, aircraft are, but that it's going to be some belly repair on it. But he's greased it in so nicely, there shouldn't be any damage to the bulkheads and and uh, uh, formers inside the fuselage. Which, which the guy that dropped in from ten feet, <laughs> I would bet money had significant of. Yeah, I would be too. I would bet that too. Waco or Waco? Depends. You're talking about Texas or an airplane? Airplanes. Of course, I'm talking about airplanes. Waco. A Waco. Uh, a Grobe or a Grob? Grobe. Grobe. It's okay. German. Okay. What's next here? Uh, potato or potato? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> how do you spell potato? Um so that's that's nasty How do you political spell the plural humor. Of potato? Well, it depends if you're an ex vice president. I know. See, I knew I shouldn't have gone there. Okay, <laughs> um, let's see now. What's next year? There was next. Oh, right. This is another. Video. Oh, sorry, folks. We're trying. I'm doing my best to get everybody to describe these videos. But this was an interesting video, and it, and it's not so much the video I want to talk about. It's something else that's related to the video. So so a video um, on Twitter um, that showed um, two airliners up way up high, sort of in the in the contrail altitude. Altitudes, um, and and we see one aircraft airliner overtaking. I, I assume they're airliners, but they're sort of big transport class aircraft. Uh, one overtaking the other um, at, at different altitudes, very clearly at different altitudes, but like really just one eclipsing the other. All right, um, and 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 the thing that was particularly interesting to me about this video um, is that it was taken from a third aircraft that was also at the flight levels, um, and. And the only thing that it's interesting because maybe I just kind of see things differently. All right, looks but, like a seven forty seven. Yeah, the thing that I took, and it was an interesting piece of video, an interesting visual, um, and and all. But the thing I immediately took from this was the fact that in order for this visual to be possible, all three of these aircraft. I'm going to oversimplify it a little bit. All three of these aircraft had to be basically tracking the center line or the same lateral point in the airway okay um and and i and and my question is and so this is an example of how they do this now and i don't think it used to be the case that this happened so reliably all right no um it used to be that you know because the airways are what they're eight miles wide four to each side i believe that's that's correct although oh that's uh, Victor Airways in the U.S. I don't yeah, know okay. Jet Airways. All right, uh, but so they're wider than they're miles wide. Is my point. Okay. All right, um, and in the days when we didn't have such precise control and you know positioning control of aircraft, you would have you would kind of be randomly off the center line, which in my view is a good thing in terms of getting additional separation. And and I've offered I think I've said this on the podcast before, and I said it on Twitter as a result of this video. Is it really a good thing? That that aircraft are able to track the center line of an airway so precisely. Well, I can I can point you to the crew and passengers of a Challenger 604. Exactly. That would not agree yeah. that that's a good thing. And that's a, and that's the example. And I that that's that was quite some time ago. But you got to figure that uh, it, it, just over the, three years ago. Oh wait. Then I'm thinking of a different one. Yeah. What's the situation you're this talking about? This is something I, I wrote up in uh, the February issue of Aviation Safety Magazine. This is January 7, 2017. Bombardier Challenger 604 Bizjet cruising at flight level 340 over the Arabian Sea. Ah, uh-huh, okay. Okay. Um, 
there was an Emirates Airbus A380 cruising at flight level 350, flying in the opposite direction along the same route. Mm-hmm. Um, the two passed the 380 ahead, I'm sorry, above uh, the Challenger, going in opposite directions on the same airway. The uh, Challenger hit the A380's wake turbulence. 40, uh, okay. 45 seconds and 15 miles later. Yep. Uh, just reading from what I wrote in the magazine, the Challenger entered an uncommanded 42-degree roll to the right, then rolled past level to 31 degrees left. The jet experienced a G-loading of 1.6 Gs positive, followed a second later by negative 3.2 Gs. Wow. Yikes. That's a roller coaster. Over a two-minute period, the Challenger lost some 8,700 feet of altitude from flight level 340 to flight level 253, a descent rate of more than 4,000 feet per minute before the crew recovered. Yeah. um, This was a German-registered bizjet, and um, Germany's uh, BFU, which I cannot begin to explain what the acronym stands for, uh, got the flight data recorder uh, information from it, and it is fugly. Um, um, It's... it's In in what way? Give me an example or two. It's the jets just cruising right along, pretty much straight and level. The 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 traces on the on the data being recorded are pretty much flat, and then they go hieroglyphics. Yeah. Okay. And um, there's there's two uh, different charts that I reprinted in the magazine. now, all of that having been said, that comes back to your, your basic point about, gee, you know, precision avionics that we have these days, we can navigate literally right down the center line of these airways, and all of the airplanes around us are doing the same thing. Yeah. Well, ICAO has um, a, uh, a uh, let me find it here real quick, um, offset procedures. Yeah. Okay. They're Which called, has a great acronym, by the way. Yeah, they're called ahead. SLOP. SLOP. Strategic yeah. Lateral Offset Procedure. And ICAO allows uh, um, aircraft um, that are in these kinds of situations to offset, to parallel their tracks uh, up to two nautical miles to the right of the center line. To, to the right it, of the center line. Okay. To, to the right, of the, you know, right of way. Yeah. Um, the aircraft to the right. It's to the right of the center line, and all of this is designed to mitigate wake turbulence. I yeah. And it's it's a great idea. Now, no, I think that brings us back to um, the issue of this seven four overtaking the seven three, being viewed by from the trip seven, and. My thought would be that um, the seven three going, uh, sorry, the, the seven four going underneath the seven three is not that big a deal, but I would not want wanted to have been aboard the seven three if it was underneath and overtaking the seven four. Ding ding ding! Yeah, yeah, they yeah. passed through that week. That could get exciting. That could uh, get exciting quickly. Yeah. Going back to your story for your magazine, that Bizjet uh, is an aircraft like that even rated to be able to stand negative three G? The airplane was was uh, totaled upon landing. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, it, right. it never it never flew. Again. It never flew again. It's, yeah. I'm glad it was totaled on landing and not totaled in flight. Because we're, man, we're drinking beer. We're drinking our beer out of the cans made from its. Uh, <laughs> okay. And th- this incident, which came as a huge 
surprise to the Challenger flight crew. Oh, yeah. Is one of the reasons why I, I urge passengers sitting next to me on airliners, people in the Put in, in GA airplanes, with me, never take off the seatbelt. Loosen it a little bit, but leave it on because yeah. something like this happens, you're airborne. Yeah, yeah, and, and you're and you're going to land not, on me. Uh, you know, if you're yeah, dumb enough to have, yeah, well, if you're dumb enough to fly to ride these things without your seatbelt, that's like on you, I guess. If they land, if they're lucky, they're landing on Jack. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, yeah, right. they're, because they, they there's a be lot landing, of hard. Yeah, they might be landing on the chair, uh, or the armchair, the arm. Yeah, okay. The, yeah, yeah you could come down square in the middle of the aisle. You could come yeah. down on a on a on, on a catering cart. Uh, the, catering well yeah yeah, yeah. so it, it makes me uncomfortable to sit next to people who insisted oh you know it's smooth the captain will tell us if there's any turbulence and i'll put the seat belt back on and like <laughs> flight attendant uh, do you do you have empty seats someplace could i just sit in the lavatory please yeah Okay, it's another. It's another. Yeah. Okay. No, I, I agree completely. It, but it's another another episode title. And, landing well, imagine, landing on that, Jack. Yeah, yeah. Imagine that Challenger flight crew, which we know was strapped in. But imagine if they hadn't been strapped in when this happened. Minus three. I know. Well, Crazy. here's here's the trick. Um, again, the flight. I mean, the aircraft was totaled. Um, the Challenger crew diverted. They had two severely injured passengers. Two other passengers and the flight attendant received minor injuries. The crew, because they were strapped in, were uninjured and yep. were able to recover the airplane. Yeah. Good point. Good point. Okay. So, somehow, someway, don't track the center line is my point. Anyways. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, and don't take off your seatbelt. And don't take off your seatbelt. All right. Okay. Uh, what's next here? Um I, I we're, we're, we really are starting to reach the end of our allotted time here, but um, a, a oh, listener no. asked me to ask this question. Um, uh, a listener commented that uh, he believed he, he in fact knew that his aircraft ownership GA flight uh, insurance rates were going up a lot, um, and and he wanted to know. He seemed to think that was true everywhere. I mean, is it your experience it that, that that uh, insurance rates are going up like dramatically for yes. GA? That's what I'm hearing. Yeah. Yes. 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 Yeah, okay. Yes. 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 Jeb, I, I, I didn't want to, in, you know, I mean, but yeah. that is your experience as well, Jeb. Yeah. My insurance on the Deb um, for uh, the 2019-2020 uh, um, period was about 1600 and change. Call it 1700 The insurance for the... Premium I've just recently paid it was was two thousand. Do the math, however percent, however much percentage increase that is, um, that's maybe fifteen percent. Yeah, fifteen twenty percent. That's been. I think I got a pretty good deal, all things considered, from based on what I've been hearing. Um, there are a lot of of uh, reasons uh, for that that are uh, macroeconomic. Um, there are also reasons that uh, affect strictly the the aviation insurance market itself. Um, I'll tell you just this one little anecdote. Um, my uh, insurance typically renews in uh, July, which is the month years ago in which I bought the airplane. Mm-hmm. 
um, I guess it would have been uh, late 2018, I got a call from the insurance broker that I use and said, hey, uh, your, your insurance has been canceled. And I'm like, what are you talking about? The carrier has canceled your insurance. They can do that. Why? Did I do something? Did I not do something? No. Uh, it's They are getting out of the business. And I said, why? Well, because apparently it's no longer uh, lucrative enough for them. Yeah. And we went on and back and forth, and, and eventually I wrote another check to buy another policy um, that went for another year from that date. Uh, so I didn't, I didn't really lose anything other than um, a, a pretty good premium, um, as well as you know, just kind of shuffled my my uh, my annual uh, payment uh, to a different month. Yeah, um, that was kind of the the I don't know the forebear, the, the harbinger of what has gone on in the aviation insurance market since then. Um, I paid more the second time I renewed, um, and uh, I'm not sure. Um, I, I know that everyone else has been paying more, uh, but I don't know all of the ins and outs of why. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's sad. Uh, well, some of it is, you know, these airplanes aren't getting any newer. Um, some of it is the pilots aren't getting any newer. Uh, okay. Uh, some yeah, of it is, of some of it has to do with, um, again, the macroeconomic situations. Um, insurance companies, of course, um, are basically, they, they run the actuarial tables. They don't make all of their money. Let me, let me put it another way. Um, their income is not strictly uh, on insurance premiums. They right. make money uh, through investing those premiums and, and uh, maybe doing other things with that money. <clears throat> Uh, so that uh, they can afford to, to pay out uh, um, uh, claims. Um, something happened with the uh, ins- aviation insurance industry a couple of, well, 18 months ago, a couple of years ago, something like that. Uh, I think a lot of it had to do with companies that entered the market um, thinking it was going to be lucrative for them, and it may have been lucrative for them for a period of time, suddenly realized that it wasn't as lucrative as they thought it was going to be, mm-hmm. and said, hey, let's just get out of this. We don't need to do this. And that's what they've done. So, in part, the competition for my premium uh, was reduced, and people, other other uh, insurers decided, you know, eh, I'm not liking what I'm seeing here as far as the risk of our portfolio. We need to increase our premiums. And here we are. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, a friend of mine told me, he used to be my insurance guy but back when I still lived in Indiana, he said that uh, 
claims in other areas of the insurance industry can influence That's true premiums yep. far away. So if you look at some of the natural disasters that we've had here in the in the states the last couple of years, the big fires in California, uh, flooding in the Midwest and the South, uh, there've been another. There've been enough un, non-aviation related areas of high claims to kind of ripple through that secondary insurance market and to reduce the uh, uh, income from the investments that the Jeb was talking about, the insurance company makes to uh, help prop up their their revenues. So it's not directly traceable to aviation. Uh, If you look at the statistics, general aviation has been getting safer, not more dangerous. But there have been more crashes and fewer fatalities Mm -hmm. in some areas. So then you throw in a fire in California that had eliminated an entire town of 40,000 people uh, flooding down in the south. Tornadoes last week in uh, Nashville. Destruction of an airport. Um, and however many uh, based GA aircraft at that airport. Yeah, that yeah, was a lot a of them. Yeah. Hey, now's a great time to pick up a used GTN 750, though. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, all right. So, yes, they are going up. All right. I, I, see, I'm not tuned into this, and so when he mentioned it to me, I thought, really? I didn't know that. And he said, yeah, ask, ask the guys. Um, so I did. Ask the guys. Ask the guys. Uh, yet another title. Um, so... Uh, uh, we're really, really reaching into a lot of time here. I'd like to flip over the cards to push everything in the rest of the list to next time. Any objection to that? No, no. Okay. okay. Uh, shout outs. Getting shout outs. Anything you want to want to do quickly before we wrap this thing up? Uh, actually, I do. Go ahead. Okay. First off, two of the finest women in aviation yes. that I've ever known, yes. Peggy Shabrian and Shelley Simi, uh, were just honored by the National Aeronautics Association. Uh, Shelley was the, uh, awarded the Stinson Award. Uh, it's a big deal, and I've known them both for years and years, and congratulations to both of them. And 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 a shout out to a, a, a friend, a couple here who uh, used to live in the area, but uh, work pushed them to other parts of the country. Uh, they'll know who I'm talking about. I'm talking about Amanda and Ryan, and congratulations on their new uh, RV. Uh, they came to Wichita last week to pick it up. It uh, they got an RV seven and. Uh, uh, from the sounds of it, I think they're going to be using the daylights out of it. So, congratulations, Captain. Sounds good. Very cool. Very cool. Jeb, you got anything? I would simply like to fully associate myself with uh, Mr. Higgins' remarks regarding uh, Peggy and Shelley. So noted. Thank you, guys. It's always fun. I appreciate it. Uh, let's see now. Uh, Jeb Burnside. Jeb is a uh, freelance aviation writer and editor, serving as the editor in chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. What have you been working on, Jeb? Anything fun? Self quarantine. Self quarantine, I know. Yeah. No, nothing fun. Um, taking a breather between issues. Um, the uh, April issue of Aviation Safety Magazine is, should be on the street about the time you uh, hear this. Um, a bunch of good stuff in there, not least of which is the uh, article. Uh, where does it say that? They're talking about myths and misunderstandings in the FARs. 
um, as well as some follow-ups and a bunch of other stuff. So uh, 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 coming soon to a, a mailbox near you. Um, Very cool. Very cool. Where can people find out about all this stuff on the Internet? Well, we can go to aviationsafetymagazine.com is a great place to start, at least for the magazine. Um, other stuff that I've been able to scribble out over the last uh, months or years, you will find on avweb.com. You will find on generalaviationnews.com. You will find on aea.net for the Aircraft Electronics Association. You will find on aienonline.com. Cool. And Dave Higdon. Dave's an aviation photographer and aviation journalist and the U.S. editor for London's Ab Buyer magazine. David, what have you been working on? Well, I, was, I, I, I did something unusual today. I actually Uh-oh. looked it up ahead of time. Oh, man, be still my heart. Go ahead, David. <laughs> well, uh, this month's uh, Avionics News magazine, uh, for some reason or another, I have a hat trick. Uh, if you're not a hockey fan, that means that I, I got three goals. Uh, three bylines. Uh, one of the stories in avionics news in the current issue is, takes a look at the coming air show season. Uh, another story headline is whether it's live or latent, and it takes uh, takes a look at how the uh, in-cockpit weather systems work and uh, their uh, advantages and uh, some shortcomings. And then uh, a story called Mayday, 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 it's about using tablets as a uh, cockpit avionics data source for backup when everything in the panel goes dark, as we know it sometimes does. So that hmm. uh, work in uh, Aft Buyer Magazine uh, and working on more. And yeah, there you're right. There you go. Okay, very cool. Where can people find out about all this stuff on the internet? Uh, uh, com for my business aviation work. AEA.net, as Jeb pointed out, for avionics news. Just click on the magazine cover and it'll take you right to the current issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm real Higdon on the Twitter machine. Uh, don't do Facebook, so you won't face me down there. And uh, oh, just to Google and roll the dice and see what comes up yeah so and i still haven't looked at nose mittens i don't know what i'm going to do here but uh maybe i'll I'll steal myself after after we finished and look at nose mittens all right thank you um and i'm jack hodgson i'm a private pilot a freelance writer and a digital media producer just got back from las vegas uh where uh we were all shaking hands by bumping elbows and uh (laughs) Um, it's a very weird, weird thing. It's very weird. Um, and, uh, um, and, and we're all becoming experts on how to wash our hands um, and, uh, and, and a whole bunch of other things that we probably should have known all along, but now we're learning them for real. Um, you can uh, learn about me uh, online in most of the usual places by the username Jack Hodgson. That's my first and last name uh, bumped together. For example, YouTube Jack, Jack Hodgson, Twitter Jack Hodgson, Patreon Jack Hodgson. On Amazon, you can search for my eBooks um, by searching for Around the Field in the Books section. And you can sign up for my email newsletter by going to my website, Jack jackhodgson.com uh, I think that's it David was there something you wanted to tell us yeah COVID-19 notwithstanding you can live a long and productive life with aviation because well you've heard this before time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan bye bye and that's enough talking let's go flying and remember that a fool and his money are soon flying more airplane that they can handle I love it.